Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Rob Shaw, who's a false prevention expert. Rob, welcome to the show. Really excited to get to know some really tangible ideas that you can share with our listeners around slips, strips, and falls. Maybe why don't we get started with a little bit of your background? You have quite a quite a unique background on a topic that often people don't talk about or assume is I can't change anything. Very true, and uh, thank you for having me, Eric. Um, yeah, I, my background is. Uh, I'm now entering my 20th year working full-time on slips, trips and falls, which amazes me more than I think anybody else. Uh, (laughs) You'd you'd be surprised that you could work for this long um, on a topic that seems very, very simple on the surface. Uh, So my background was 15 years with the UK health and safety regulator, uh, the health and safety executive, where I worked as a scientist Mm -hmm. um, doing research into why people fall over, what can be done to prevent it, and helping the regulator write their policy documents and their guidance, helping them undertake slip, trip and fall accident investigations and helping clients commercially reduce their risk of slips, trips and falls. And I think when I started the job, I thought it would end up being a bit of a a sort of an insurance gig um, and I'd do it for a little while and then I'd find something else. But actually, there's a lot of science that underpins why people fall over. Mm -hmm. But once you apply that science, the solutions are quite simple. So it's, it's a technical subject that also has direct practical applications to help companies reduce risk. Um, and I found that to, to sort of take my interest for the last 20 plus years. Um, so about five years ago, I started my own consultancy doing exactly the same thing. It, really interesting because it's a, it's a topic that a lot of organizations kind of assume it's going to happen. Um, so what's the size of the problem that, that around slips, strips and falls in the UK and, and worldwide? I think that's one of the big problems with with slips and trips is it's often seen as very minor, something that you can't do anything about. um, And there are bigger problems, you know, industry and organisations worldwide have a lot of safety risks to manage. And some of them are very tangible and could if they if there's a failure result in serious injury to lots of people. But in reality, most organisations find that slips, trips and falls are one of their highest causes of regular injury. So in the UK, for example, um, the highest cause of non-fatal major injuries in the UK workplace are slips, trips and falls. Every year, about a third of all of the major injuries, so things that require Mm -hmm. hospital visits, hospital stays, significant time off work, result from a slip or a trip. Um, and the, the same is true worldwide. The last time I looked at the um, the statistics in the US, for example, um, the CDC say that over a million Americans a year are injured following a, a slip, trip and fall, including 17,000 fatalities. Um, wow. And they account for at least 15% of all workplace injuries in the US as well. Um, so they actually are quite serious. And when you're talking about the size of this problem, you're talking about whether I'm slipping, tripping... At, or falling at, from different heights, or is it same level? Typically, all those statistics relate to the same level. Um, mm-hmm. So falls from height is its own category of risk. Um, and we know that 
slips and trips are very closely linked to falls from height, but obviously right. the consequences are potentially more severe because the resulting fall is is from a greater height. Um, so those statistics don't take into account falls from height, falls from ladders, and so on. And, and I know when we, we spoke originally, one of the things that really struck me is a lot of organizations do root cause analysis around them, and the root cause analysis is very weak and essentially gets to, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of my my environment, I, 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 I slipped, I don't know why, or I was new to this part of the, of the job site, etc. So what are some of the myths that, that exist around slip strips and falls like that, that basically it's not preventable? I think that's exactly the core of it is is the common myths are that they're not particularly serious and you know we've we've made the point that actually they they result in a lot of serious injuries every year and a large number of fatalities you know unfortunately my my 20 year career has been spent investigating the more serious end of of slip strips and falls and there are some very unpleasant ones but the second point that you draw on there that that they're seen as something that can't really be prevented they're just part of the cost of doing business people will find a way to fall on floors and while that's very true, people are very good at falling over and, you know, walking as bipedal creatures is actually quite a challenging biomechanical <laughs> task. It's heavily influenced by environmental fas- factors and by task factors. Um, so one of the big myths is that there isn't really a lot you can do about it. And that's typically because most root cause analysis, in my experience, tends to come down as far as human error right. and stop there. Um, and if there has been a slip, trip or fall, at some point there must have been a human error. Somebody has, has failed to do the walking process properly. But that error is very, very heavily influenced by the environment, the design of the task, the individual's mm-hmm. capabilities and so on. Um, and I think in root cause analysis, what we do is we get to human error and it's a very convenient Root cause because we can say, well, there's nothing else we could have done. The individual needs to pay more attention. We will focus on training. We'll focus on on awareness. Uh, But it doesn't help in managing further risk. You know, if somebody slipped on a wet floor or tripped over Mm -hmm. an obstacle, by not getting down to the root cause of how slippery that floor is, when it's wet, how it was wet in the first place, why the obstacle came to be there, how you would prevent it again, it relies on the next individual using that area to do a better job of navigating the hazard rather than removing the underlying hazard. So I think those are the problems. The the three big myths and issues are the the perception that they're not serious, um, the perception that there's nothing that you can do about them, um, and and then the poor root cause analysis. And as we'll go on to talk about, there are lots of very simple solutions to slips, trips and falls, but they're rarely based on good evidence. They're rarely based on a good root cause analysis and an appropriate scientific selection of an intervention. Um, and that gives us lots of problems because organizations often will have put lots of time, effort and money into a solution to what they see as the problem. And if it's not the right solution, it doesn't work. And that reinforces the opinion that you can't do anything about them. You know, we've invested this time, this money, we've sure. bought shoes, we've changed the floor and it didn't reduce the risk. We still had slips. And that's likely to be because they didn't actually get down to good quality scientific evidence. So, so it, before we get to some of the drivers and some of the solutions, what would you advise organizations or leaders when they're looking at root cause analysis? What should they be expecting to see? I think one of the things that I see routinely with um, with clients' information, and normally if I'm working with a new client, the first thing yeah. I'll recommend is that we look at their data um, and look at it from the point of view of an expert because... Mm-hmm. 
One of the most common mistakes is that slips, trips and falls, particularly in workplace risk assessments, are, are sort of thought about as a, a single word, a single line on a risk assessment, slips, trips, right. falls. And often when you break down the uh, the issues that there have been, you find that the the idea of slips and trips are considered completely uh, within the same category, where actually the root causes are very different from a slip mm-hmm. or a trip and your solutions are, are different. Um, and the way that people go about reporting and their engagement with the process is also very important. So we, we work with a partner who, who um, has a, uh, a software tool for mm-hmm. um, any data analysis. It's not just risk data, but it has sure. a really nice feedback loop and a very quick and easy way to go. Um, and so gathering better quality data is, is very, very important, but also querying that data for common themes, common issues, not only between... Um, incidents but across sites you know which are your high-risk areas commonly in different sites are they internal versus external maybe the kitchen or the toilet environments mm-hmm. um, and actually looking at where perhaps the the best effort would be spent in reducing that risk sure okay so really looking at themes and trending to understand where should i go fix first <clears throat> but but should there be something if i'm an executive looking at root cause analysis should i be challenging my team if if the the root cause that's identified is human error situational awareness uh or should i accept that that's a very good question and i i think i would genuinely i generally say challenge um it doesn't mean that the the wrong root cause has been identified there will be situations under which human error has occurred um, distraction is an obvious example you know if people are on a mobile phone whilst right. they're completing a task we know from the research and some very good and interesting research was done many years ago um, I wasn't allowed to take part but it sounds very good fun um, <laughs> that showed that if you were holding an in-depth conversation on a mobile phone whilst walking yeah. the level of distraction was something similar to six shots of whiskey um, so who the control group were for that, I don't know. Very interesting science. Um, but it, it does have a significant cognitive load. So it requires right. you to focus on the conversation. You're less aware of your environment. So it doesn't mean that human error is not a valid part of that um, that root cause analysis. But if it's the only issue identified, it doesn't put the organization sure. in a position to um, to do anything positive to reduce that risk in future. So I would challenge that more should be looked at and in many cases what we advise is for the investigators so whether it be Mm -hmm. the safety teams or the facilities management teams a little bit of training on the risks and the root causes of slips trips and falls is very valuable because a lot of people don't know what they don't know and the problem with slips and trips is we've all had one Um, and most of us are lucky enough to have had one that we got away from without significant injury so we've got some predetermined ideas of how it happened. And mm-hmm. as humans, we're also very good at blaming ourselves. It's very embarrassing when you fall over, particularly if you didn't injure yourself severely. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing we do tend to do is internalize and say, oh, I should have been paying attention. Oh, I'm fine. No, no, no. Sure. That's... So it might even be that the injured party is saying, no, 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 there was nothing wrong with the environment. I just wasn't paying attention. Because once you've lost mm. your balance, either from a slip or a trip, the fall is very, very fast. You hit the ground so quickly, it can be difficult to unpack what actually happened. So even the language from the reports of the injured party or the immediate investigators might be difficult to rely on. And the actual mechanics of the fall might be more informative as to what is likely to have happened. Interesting. So let's get to some of the drivers and then some of the solutions, because I think ultimately that 
that's really interesting in terms of how can you make a, a tangible impact in these areas. So first, drivers around <clears throat> slips, trips and falls. And you said there, the drivers typically are different one from the other. Absolutely. So, I mean, trips in terms of um, of initiating factors, um, trips is, is where you catch your foot on something and, and fall over. So typically they result from housekeeping issues or maintenance issues. Sure. So something that's underfoot that shouldn't be there or something that's become damaged and is standing proud. Um, but also trips can happen over permanent obstacles in an environment. So single steps between levels, um, bunding around machinery, anything that, that causes a change in level underfoot, particularly if it's it's quite hard to see, it gives you the opportunity for your foot to contact that object sure. and cause you to trip. And it doesn't have to be a solid object or a square edge. You know, it could be a trailing cable or a flap of carpet, something we've all encountered. When it comes to slips, they tend to be a little bit more complicated. Um, and this is where the science sort of hooked me in and has, has kept me interested for 20 plus years. It's a combination of the floor material you're walking on, and that could be a carpeted office, but it could also be an access platform in an industrial environment. It could be the back of a vehicle. So any surface that, that you're walking on, mm-hmm. the footwear that you have on your feet or not, we investigate a lot of barefoot slips in leisure environments, in changing rooms and so yeah. on and the contamination present between the two. So those three factors will have a significant determination as to how much grip is available. And then depending on the task you're trying to achieve, whether you're walking from A to B, or whether you're actually pushing and pulling a load, moving some objects, that will all influence how much friction you need to safely complete that task. And all those factors need to be considered when you're looking at the risk of a slip. So it's, mm-hmm. we tend to gravitate to one issue or another, well, we'll replace the floor with a better floor. And that's sure. a very good collective control, but it may not address some of the other issues around the task and so on. Interesting. And so let's dive a little bit deeper into some of the solutions to it. Um, you talked about changing the floor being one option. One thing that intrigued me was a, an experiment that you talked about between two fast food companies, one that focused on footwear and then one that focused on the on the surface that people are walking in. So tell me about a little bit about some of the, the solutions that exist to address slips, strips, and falls. Yeah, so when it comes to slips, um, and I tend to focus most of my efforts on slips because that's where the, the technical issues are, uh, organizations are generally better at addressing trips because they're more obvious in terms sure. of the hazards, um, although that does give us some issues. Um, but in terms of slips, the, the big issues are obviously the flooring the footwear and any contamination present Mm -hmm. now there's very very good slip resistant flooring out there and there's very very good slip resistant footwear both of which can essentially eliminate the risk of slips in most typical environments Um, i mean if we think about outdoor surfaces Mm -hmm. outdoor slips tend to be less frequent um, and they tend to happen on more challenging surfaces you know where you're walking on um, grass or mud or something that's very heavily contaminated with with something solid um, but typically walking across a sidewalk or a pavement we don't see lots and lots and lots of slips in in sure. normal wet conditions um, very normal anyway for, for our part of the world um, so there's very good slip resistant surfaces out there and very good slip resistant footwear the big challenge is identifying something appropriate for your workplace or your organization or your public space is very difficult because there are hundreds and hundreds of different test methods all of which purport to (laughs) test slip resistance but in reality what we're interested in is how slippery is this surface when a person walks on it not 
when moving a car tire at 10 miles an hour at 30 degrees, not when trying to break a, a rubber sled. There's lots of different methods, but they need to simulate the, the dynamic interaction of the pedestrian heel and the floor surface. And there's only a very small number of tests that, that do that well. So one of the challenges is that if you wish to specify a certain floor surface, Mm-hmm. You can almost certainly find a test somewhere that will tell you that it's appropriate, but that doesn't actually mean that when you've got it back into the workplace that it's helping you mm-hmm. manage the risk. Um, and we see lots of issues with national standards. Um, you know, There are no sure. agreed um, international standards on yeah. testing the slip resistance of flooring. It's very different nation to nation, um, and the, the quality of the tests and the, the usefulness of the information varies. Um, when it comes to managing... Uh, the risk of footwear the picture is a bit simpler in that test methods are much more similar Um, so Mm -hmm. there's a a single standard test for how slip resistant footwear is across Europe um, and the same test method is used in an ASTM in the US Um, slightly different interpretation of those results but the same test method the inherent problem with that is that 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 test method itself is flawed it doesn't test the bit of the interaction we're interested in, which is at what mm. point does this shoe fail in a challenging environment? It doesn't challenge the footwear. What it does is forces it to fail and then measures how much friction is generated during the slip, um, which is a very different question. Um, sure. So those are, those are some of the challenges around slips. Um, and then there are lots of issues around human factors, and they particularly come into play around the cleaning process. So many floors that are smooth and shiny for example will be very slippery when they're wet but they'll offer excellent friction when clean and dry because you've got very good material contact between the footwear and the floor so it's not necessarily the case that having a smooth shiny floor is always bad or that any floor is inherently slippery it's about managing risk Uh, but one of the big challenges is if those floors do get wet then you've got to be able to manage that very carefully because the risk changes quite dramatically from the dry condition. Um, So what we find is that by managing the cleaning, both how effective the cleaning is at removing contaminants from the floor Mm -hmm. and also how well managed the cleaning process is itself so that during any wet part of the cleaning process, people are not accessing that floor other than Mm -hmm. the cleaning staff who who need to be considered, um, then that that can also help improve the the management of risk. So the example you talked about with the fast food restaurants, there are Mm -hmm. two well-known fast food brands um, internationally, but but within the UK, their representatives were members of a food group um, with the health and safety executive, with the regulator. And about 20-ish years ago, um, we we sort of came together with that group and said, right, these are some of the root cause issues. These are some of the things that we could be doing. And they both decided to go in very different directions with their solutions for preventing slips in their kitchen environments. So one focused very much on their floor specification and the way they cleaned that floor, didn't Mm -hmm. do anything about footwear. And the other one moved very much into specifying good slip resistant footwear for all staff and put less emphasis on what the floor was in the kitchen and how often and, and how well they cleaned it. And they both had significant reductions in injury rates. Um, I believe about 65% each. It was completely comparable. Two very Mm. different solutions, but both worked to control the risk. Now, as those two organizations have matured, they're actually now looking at it more holistically. Each one is now looking at flooring, footwear, and cleaning as, as they've grown into that. But in the first instance, two different solutions, but both appropriate, both selected using relevant science and both organizations saw a significant reduction in the injuries that they were having in those kitchens so 
you talked about the regulatory side where there isn't, or regulatory or standard side where there isn't a common standard that really addresses the need for slip-resistant floors or or footwear. How can people navigate around it in the absence of of a clean standard that really helps solve that problem? This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, de- develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. It is a real challenge. Um, and what, what I would say is that you need somebody who is an expert in slip resistance, sure. um, which sounds very much like a sales pitch um, and will sound more like a sales pitch when I say that's actually quite difficult to do because one of the challenges in our industry is there's a lot of vested interest and a lot of false expertise. So, for example, when it comes to testing flooring, mm-hmm. um, within the UK especially, there are a lot of people who offer free flooring tests or very, very cheap flooring tests. And they will come right. out, test your floor. It will always say the floor is bad. And they will have in the van something you can put on the floor that will make it better. And then they'll sell that to you. <laughs> right. um, and it's not to say those products don't work. There are ways of modifying existing floors that improve the slip resistance and, and improve safety. But... The, the vested interest is always going to be in selling that product and applying that product when actually in that environment, the floor may not be the, the key factor that's going wrong. It may mm-hmm. be the management of contamination. It may be the, um, you know, the footwear the individuals are wearing or the tasks they're being asked to do. Sure. Um, so it's really about finding sort of uh, independent um, advice and guidance. And in the UK, that has always been through the regulator. Okay. Now, the, the regulator in the UK has changed the way they do their science a little bit. Um, and slips, trips and falls is not currently a topic that's that's emphasised. It's a hibernated topic. So they're not sort of proactively enforcing on it and working on it, which is why we went independent. Yeah. Um, because when that happened, I was sort of given the choice of retraining and, and learning a new safety discipline or, or carrying on doing what we were doing. And we've not fixed slips, trips and falls yet. No. Um, so yeah, independent expertise. Um, I'm currently the lead for preventing workplace falls for the International Ergonomics Association Slips, Trips and Falls Technical Committee. Mm-hmm. And that technical committee has a really wide membership from across the world, um, lots of scientists and academics from different universities and different commercial organisations and um, and they host, they host conferences every year and so on. So this year's conference is, is in Toronto. Um, and that, that sort of organization of independent researchers and mm-hmm. consultants and, and so on is a, a good place to start. So, so that we've touched on the topic of slips. How about trips? So for trips, the, the first thing is good risk assessment for the environment. Mm-hmm. So identifying low-lying hazards, trailing cables, um, for the maintenance defects, damaged tiling or, or cracked floor surfaces, um, you know, drain covers that are, are not sitting properly, sure. a, a good reporting system is key because the individuals who work in those areas day after day will be very familiar with those hazards. We'll likely have had near misses around them or will have spotted them. Sure. And you can almost crowdsource your risk assessment if you have a very good reporting process that's very quick and easy to do. Mm-hmm. But critically, that reporting process needs some feedback in it. 
So if an individual reports, you know, a damaged grate, sure. it may not be possible to fix it the following day. You know, you need to get an engineer in, you need to find budget for that and so on. But if nothing at all is done following the report for two months, the individual sort of feels like they're not being listened right. to. So it's really important that the, you're able to go back to them straight away and say, we appreciate that report, we've received it, this is what we're going to do about it, and encourage engagement with that process. Um, when it comes to some sort of permanent trip hazards built into environments, so single steps, curbs at crossings, uh, bonding around machinery, that kind of thing, visibility is very, very important. Um, and the same mm. is true for navigating steps and stairs, which have their own set of challenges and, and hazards. Um, so the, the visibility of the obstacle is really critical. The way that we navigate an environment is we tend to scan ahead of ourselves. Not consciously, we, we subconsciously scan. And if something is visible, if it contrasts with its sure. surroundings, we note it. And as we approach, we find a way to deal with that. And um, the obvious example I usually use is as you approach a flight of stairs, you don't get to the bottom and stop. Think about what you're doing and then place your foot onto the bottom step and start yeah. to use the stair. You just seamlessly walk up because as you're scanning the environment, a, a flight of stairs ahead of you is a very obvious change in level and, and change in situation. Mm. Same is true of a well-highlighted ramp. But if you come across a single step that you didn't notice in your scanning because it's not a significant change in level and it's perhaps covered in the same coloured carpet or the same coloured yeah. floor material, that's when people tend to trip. Um, and what the research has shown us, and there's, there's some great research out of Pittsburgh University that shows that as people approach a visible curb or step, they'll do one of two things. They'll either take one longer step, so their next step is ready to go on to the, um, the, mm -hmm. the rise, the change in height, or they'll take one shorter step when they adjust their gait. But these are all subconscious decisions. Nobody's thinking about this. Sure. So you need to give people those correct physical and visual cues so that their subconscious processes are working properly. One of the challenges around um, a root cause analysis ending at human error is that you can't reliably say to somebody, well, be more observant, be more aware of your environment and stop falling over and expect them to do any of those things because we don't consciously think about this as we walk. It's, it's very much a, a subconscious process. Interesting. And how about in an uncontrolled environment? So what I mean by this is if I'm a field worker, as an example, and I'm not working in a natural environment or an environment that I get to control because it's either third party or I'm outdoors uh, climbing poles. What are some of the strategies in those instances? It's a very interesting situation where you've got um, peripatetic workers, for example, who are either out and about outdoors or out on other people's sites or sure. even contract cleaners who might be on their own sites or other people's sites but have to access floors that are, for example, slippery when wet and then as part of their work process, wet them. So mm. you've removed the level of control of the flooring. It may not be your site or your organization it may be an outdoor surface that can't be controlled you've removed the element of contamination because of the weather outdoors or mm -hmm. you know it's, it's somebody else again somebody else's site and processes so the key control in that situation is footwear um, and okay. it's one that I recommend quite often for contract cleaners and for outdoor workers and it's one that we've had great success with um, with with peripatetic workers i've done a lot of work with utilities companies um, mm -hmm. both water companies and, and electricity companies maintenance engineers and even sales forces now people who are still doing door-to-door -door sales yeah. um, and are traveling getting in and out of vehicles accessing 
residential properties, um, all without any control other than what's on their feet. And a well-specified slip-resistant shoe can protect in those environments. And there's a perception that a lot of slip-resistant footwear is developed for indoors, and therefore, really, it's it's an indoor shoe. Actually, the, the principle works. It's a very crude analogy, but similar to a car tyre. A good piece of slip-resistant footwear works by displacing the water or the oil or the contamination beneath the shoe and still giving you some contact between the rubber material of the, the shoe sole mm-hmm. and the flooring. And it will do that in an internal and an external environment. Um, and some of them will even work on snow and ice within certain tolerances. Sure. Um, Very good in the UK, where our freezing temperatures tend to be around about zero to minus five. Mm -hmm. I did do some work in the uh, the onshore Canadian oil fields, where they get down to about minus (laughs) twenty, and the rubber properties change quite significantly then. So that that has its own challenges. Different challenge in those cases. I think all you're stuck with is metal grip, in in that case, right? Yeah. Well, we we actually found a piece of rubber footwear that really did not perform as well as the very top rubber footwear but whose properties did not change as significantly during the temperature transition um, and so was still quite appropriate for the environment. So there's, there's always something, but you, you do need to sort of <laughs> find your specific challenge and find yes. your evidence to make sure you've got that correct solution. It, it makes me wonder why, uh, if we're, we're getting at a workplace boot as an example, why you wouldn't have every workplace boot with that grip resistance as well as the composite toe. Yeah. Um, like, why are you solving for composite toe without the grip? It's, I mean, it's something that, that I often talk about. Now, within, within Europe, anything mm-hmm. that has that, um, that composite toe tends to have a good, okay. well, a well-rated slip-resistant sole on it. The problem is that it can be well-rated in the standard test, but in reality, it may not offer the protection you need. Um, there was some research done in California that showed that using that standard test... Um, you, if you chose all the footwear that, that got the highest rating in that test, you could flip a coin and that's your chance of actually getting a boot that's appropriate for your environment. It was about 50-50. So of those that passed the test, half of them were good and did offer protection and half of them weren't because the standard isn't set up to challenge footwear and to give mm. you a, a very challenging test method. It's set up by manufacturers to pass the footwear they already make because that's where the sure. vested interest is and, and where a lot of people on the, the committee come from. Um, so that's that's a significant challenge. And so there's no way around it for an individual even to, to figure out which footwear is better other than tossing a coin. Uh, if using the standard tests, no, there are some better tests out there. So the, mm-hmm. the regulator in the UK has its own footwear test method, sure. uh, which isn't set up as a standard. It's set up as a voluntary scheme for manufacturers. Um, it's called the HSE GRIP scheme. Um, and the way that works is it uses a biomechanically valid test to actually test when a piece of footwear fails rather than how much mm. grip it, it generates during sliding. Um, But the power of that test is that the the pass thresholds, as you will, or the the rating thresholds are based on risk, not based on um, sort of an arbitrary how many pieces of footwear can pass this. And the idea is that you can use a risk assessment then. You don't always need the best possible shoe. You need one that provides a suitable level of slip resistance as part of whatever whatever else you have in your risk assessment. Um, And the idea is that the manufacturers who already make excellent footwear, their footwear will pass the standard tests Mm. as the others do, but they can also demonstrate this additional level of performance in this test almost as a a marketing exercise, and it's, it's very, very effective. Um, and there are two 
large-scale clinical trials showing that this works. Um, one was performed in the U.S., um, by NIOSH, by Jennifer Bell, and one mm-hmm. was in the UK, um, Mark Little and co. from the Health and Safety Executive. And they were large-scale trials using footwear that had achieved a five-star grip rating, so sort of the highest rating on the, mm-hmm. the HSE voluntary scheme. And one was done with um, hospitality workers in kitchens. Mm-hmm. That was the US study, and they found that it made a significant reduction in the number of claims uh, and the number of injuries. And in the UK, it looked at uh, healthcare workers. So working in environments where quite often floors are very smooth and shiny for hygiene reasons. They often get wet, sometimes unpredictably. And asking the question whether if the the National Health Service in the UK were Mm -hmm. to provide footwear for staff in these sort of high-risk environments, which they don't currently, so it would be a significant um, financial outlay that they don't currently undertake, would it reduce the risk and would there be a cost benefit? Um, And the answer to that trial was also, yes, it would be a a significant reduction in risk. And actually, it would be of cost benefit to do that, even though the footwear costs more that they're not currently spending. It's saving a significant amount in injury, lost time and and claims. And that was a... um, a statistically significant clinical trial of four and a half thousand healthcare workers. Hmm. Um, so we, we've got some very good evidence that that intervention works. So thank you very much, Rob, for sharing all of these uh, themes. I think the main takeaway is we're not doing enough around slips, trips and falls. We're accepting that there's a high number and it's hard to change as opposed to really getting down to what's the root cause and what are some, some potential solutions to, to addressing them. So Thank you for sharing all these insights. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, Rob, uh, how can they do that? Uh, the best way is by email. Uh, my email address is rob at robshawassociates.com. Um, and as you've probably gathered, I'm quite happy to talk about slips, trips and falls <laughs> to, uh, until the cows come home. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.